chapter 7 this morning. Judges chapter 7. So as you turn there, many of you might be familiar with the old Peanuts cartoon. Lucy, Linus, and Charlie Brown laying on their backs looking up at the clouds. And Lucy says, the clouds are amazing. Linus, what do you see? And Linus says, oh, well, over there I see what looks like a map of the British Isles. And over here I see, I see a portrait of a famous painter. And over here I see the image of Stephen being stoned. And Lucy says to Charlie Brown, Charlie, what do you see? And Charlie said, I was going to say I saw a pony and a duck. But I changed my mind. So as we turn to um, Judges 7, we have a tendency to compare ourselves to others. And very often we don't feel like we measure up. And we read about great heroes in the Bible, or we compare ourselves to the pastor or the elders or other Christians who seem to be on their way. But sometimes those stories that are meant to inspire us actually take us down a peg or two. They make us feel small and weak because we don't measure up. Well, today's Bible passage is for you when you feel like that. It's about Gideon. Now, don't worry that Gideon is a hero in our passage. He's probably a lot more like us than we think. So let's hear from our text. In chapter 7, I'll begin reading uh, the first seven verses, and then I'm going to drop down. So from Judges 7, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 were left. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With these 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And I will give the Midianites into your hand and let all, and let all the others go every man to his home. And now uh, verses 16 through 22. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, 
Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then three of the companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord said, Every man swore against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Maholah, by Taboth. And so ends the reading of God's word. Father, we'd ask now that your spirit might speak to our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see, that we might understand that this word of yours is meant to feed our souls. So, Father, may we see it as your words and not the words of some stumbling seminary student. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, there's a man named Walter Wanagren who wrote a book called Morning and Dancing. And in the book, the main character is a lady named Gloria, and she is struggling with the death of her uncle, an uncle who had been like the father that she never had. So when Gloria is a young girl, her uncle goes off to war, and of course she's quite terrified of this. And the uncle, sensing this, gives her an Indian head nickel. And he says, if you promise to put this in your purse and not lose it, I'll come home from the war to get my nickel back. So she did. And the uncle came home, sure enough, from the war alive and well. Years later, when he passed, Gloria had that same dream, the dream that she had as a child that her uncle would come to her and he would come home to get the nickel again. But not this time. This was a war her uncle would not survive. And she knew that deep down. But she clung to that childhood dream. And as the months go by, the fact that he will never return makes Gloria more depressed. She cannot seem to move forward. She is bogged down in her grief, and instead her mind returns to the past over and over and over, reliving the past, reliving it so much that that is where she's placed her life now, in the past. She cannot move forward. And her pastor tries to help, and in the pastor's office, she refuses to talk. She won't even look up at the pastor. She sits there, lost in her grief, and her shattered dream. Yet inside, Gloria knows that her actions are hurting her family and they're hurting herself. And she feels so badly, she's beginning to feel useless. Now the minister can tell that she's ashamed. He knows her background and he leans in and touches her arm 
And he reminds her of the gospel. And he says, Gloria, I wish my words were an Indian head nickel. And your heart was a purse so that I could tuck this gospel into you and you'd never lose it. God loves you, Gloria. And God cares about you. He will not abandon you. He's there. He's waiting for you to come to the bottom of yourself. So that in His grace and mercy, He can lift you back up. And He can, he can hold you in His arms. So that you can feel how much He cares for you. He knows how much you miss your uncle. He was there beside you when you lost your uncle. He knows the pain in your heart. And He gave you that uncle to love you and to shape you into the person you are today. But glory, you're no longer a little girl. You're a mature woman. And God is still growing you. He still has things for you to do. Of course it's going to be different. Of course it will be a challenge. And you're probably scared. But glory, God has not abandoned you. He still loves you. And that's a message we're going to see in this account of Gideon. Gideon seems far too weak to do what he's about to do, what God's calling to do. Understanding how God uses those who feel or seem weak is one of the keys to gaining the assurance of God's love, the love that he has for us. And for those of us who know what it means to feel hopeless like Gloria did. That's why there's a story like Gideon in the Bible. So how does the Bible use Gideon to assure us that God can indeed use the weak? Well, you won't get the answer from the text we read. That's the hero part of the story. You have to go back in Gideon's story. Back to chapter 6. And you can turn there if you want to. We're not going to read too much from chapter 6. But that's where we're going to learn about Gideon. We'll learn about his weakness. The answer begins to unfold as God calls Gideon to go save Israel from the Midianites. And in chapter 6 it says he's threshing wheat in a wine press. When an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, man of valor. Now you have to get the irony here. Typically, you would not thresh wheat in a wine press. You would thresh wheat outside where there's wind. Why? So the wind can blow the chaff and all the dust away. Not in an enclosed place like a wine press where it's enclosed to protect from the dust and the wind. So why is Gideon standing around in this haze of dust because there's no wind to take it away, chaff all over him? Why is he doing that? He's afraid. The Midianites have taken over the country. He's afraid. 
And he wants to protect what he has, what little he has. So he's threshing wheat in a wine press. It's, uh, so for the angel of the Lord to come to him and say, mighty warrior, man of valor, it'd be like one of us walking into McDonald's and shouting to the back to the teenage kid cooking your hamburger, great job, chef, fantastic job, chef, it's wonderful. They just don't fit together. Am I making sense? That It just doesn't fit together. Mighty warrior, man of valor. It's not Gideon. Gideon is not a strong soldier. He's afraid. He's weak. And he's paralyzed by the changes that are happening in his life. Despite his weakness, the angel says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to Israel? So Gideon reacts to God's assurance by questioning the truth of it. And he's going to ask more questions. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told about, told us about? When they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? And the questions aren't the worst sign of his weakness. He follows with an accusation. In 6.13, Gideon says, But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. Showing patience and restraint, the one whom Scripture now describes as the Lord himself tries a second time to put a little iron in Gideon's backbone. Go in strength. You have and save Israel. Am I not sending you? Gideon's response, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest. I'm the least in my family. Translation, here am I. Send someone else. I can't do it. So Gideon's response to God's assurances are questions, accusations, and evasion. So what else might we learn about Gideon's weakness? Well, the Lord responds by promising, I will be with you, and I will strike down the Midianites. And how does the mighty warrior respond to this? He says, in essence, you're going to have to prove it. I don't believe it. And remarkably, God does just that. The angel of the Lord brings fire from a rock to consume an offering of Gideon's. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon again, and as a warm-up for significant battles to come, he tells Gideon to stand for the Lord among his own family. God tells Gideon to destroy his father's idols. His father, like many of the Israelites at the time, was a Baal worshiper. So the mighty warrior sneaks off in the night, and he does it. Destroys his father's night idols but he does it at night he doesn't want anyone to see him the following day the people ask who did this 
They're angry. They want blood. Does Gideon say it was I standing for the Lord Almighty? Mm, no. He lies in his weakness and ends up being saved by his daddy who says, <laughs> Baal can take care of himself against the likes of my son. So then how does Gideon begin this war? He faced down his father, kind of, not really, but it was a test, it was a preparation. So once again, he asked God to show himself. Gideon builds up his courage a little bit by testing God. Gideon says to the Lord, I'm going to put this wool fleece on the threshing floor. You all know this story. And in the morning, I want you to make it wet and all the surrounding area dry. And so God does it. So how does the mighty warrior, the man of valor, respond? Uh, could you do it again? This time, um, let's make the fleece dry and the ground wet. Could we do that? And even though the angel of the Lord has come and talked to him, talked to him and given him a mighty name, and done many miracles, Gideon's still afraid. He's still weak. Of course, God grants his request. What would you do with Gideon at this point? Would you pick Gideon to be your leader? Who would pick this guy looking at his character to accomplish a great work of God? He really seems quite useless for this task. His weakness makes him a very unlikely candidate. So why do we need such a timid hero in the scriptures, why is Gideon there? I think because it is very easy for every one of us to identify with Gideon's weakness. We face trials too, and sometimes those trials wear us down until we feel hopeless. Unprepared, perhaps even useless. We can clearly see our own weakness in Gideon. And we can offer plenty of excuses as to why we can't do something that might require us to face a fear. We might think just as Gideon did, like the Lord has abandoned us. In moments of trial when finances are short, your family is suffering, or life is changing and going in a direction we didn't want to go in, we might be, attempted to, we might be tempted to accuse God brought us here and abandoned us. And you know as well as I do, these fears can take hold of us over and over and over, repeatedly. I want you to know that having these fears and this weakness, even repeatedly, does not mean that God can't or won't use you. Fear of the present, fear of the future. Anxiety over this or that, fear of God, fear of the dark, fear of the enemy, fear of your neighbor, fear of failing, fear of pink bushy-tailed elephants. All these things make you who you are and make you feel weak. Brothers and sisters, 
God can and does use people who are afraid to do what he wants them to do. God used Gideon for his glory, for the glory of the kingdom. And just because you and I are afraid and feel weak does not mean that God is going to disappear. Oh, that's a weak one. I can't use that one. Oh, let's, let's move on. Let's find a strong one. This is a weak one. God is there to help us face our weakness. It is in our weakness that God's glory is revealed. Do you understand that? And while Judges chapter 6 tells us a great deal about the limitations of Gideon, chapter 7, despite telling us about his military victory, also tells us a little bit about the limits of his qualifications. Did Gideon have a great victory over 135,000 Midianites because of this army's outstanding qualifications? Nothing in his army, in the army itself, or in him, qualified Gideon for this victory he was going to have. Consider the character of the men in his army. From where did the army come from? From the nation of Israel. And in chapter 6, verse 1, at the very beginning of Gideon's account, we see they were a people who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Gideon's own father has an altar to Baal. And when Gideon tears it down, we heard the people are not happy. They want blood. They want justice. So that's a little something about the character of the people from which this army comes from. If Israel's to have a great victory, it won't have anything to do with their character. It won't have anything to do with their strength. Remember how Gideon first chose the army? He sent home the scaredy cats. You all go home. You don't, you don't, you don't belong here. 22,000 of them who went home. So then he chose the remaining 10,000, those who knelt down to drink and lapped the water with their hands like a dog, rather than those who fell down on their bellies to drink. Let's think about that. Who's likely to be better soldiers? The guy who walks up to the water and kneels down and gets a cup of water in his hand. Or the guy who is so tired from preparation for battle that he goes and falls down at the edge of the water to drink. Well, God sent those men home. God sent the ones who prepared home. He left Gideon with the guys who apparently didn't prepare for battle too hard. They could just scoop up a little water, wet their tongue satisfy what thirst they might have had. And we, of course, know that 300 men is not enough to battle 135,000. Now, is it? No matter how weak they were, no matter how strong they were, how mentally prepared they were, no matter how spiritually strong they might have been, 300 is an inappropriate number for 135,000. 
So by using them to do this, God shows, once again, He can use people who are not very capable for His own ends. God can use people whose weakness should keep them from being helpful to Him. You see, God took them in a radically different direction than they thought they could go or wanted to go. The simple message of Gideon is that the Lord uses the frail and the weak for His glory. Let's not count ourselves out because we do not measure up according to human estimations. Inadequate character, inadequate resources, those mean nothing when God is at work. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes one of the most challenging things for us to grasp and believe about the life of faith. God purposefully blesses us with weakness for the sake of our joy. That's why Paul said, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He even went beyond that and he said, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, <coughs> insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul knew better than most that it is not human achievement that showcases the grace of God. It is human helplessness. It is human weakness. It is frailty. Now, there's no better demonstration of the power and glory of God working through weakness than the cross that I can think of. The power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. Christ died a peasant's death on a cross. Christ was not the powerful king-like Messiah the people expected. He was a poor man. He was a carpenter's son. He cannot be Messiah. Look at him. He's dying a peasant's death on the cross. If he was who he said he was, could he not get down from the cross? Could he not stop all of this? If you think about the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ had a terribly emotionally difficult time with what he was about to do. You understand, there's a difference between willingness and wanting to. And Christ struggled with that. In his prayer, he asked the Father, is there another way? He's demonstrating the weakness in his humanity. And yet he did it. He was willing to do it. Let's not suggest that he couldn't wait to do it. He was willing to do it. He was willing to do it for his father, and he was willing to do it for you and I. It is in that weakness that the power and the glory of God is found. In that weakness. Now, our culture 
does not define weakness as valuable. In fact, our culture encourages us to avoid any notion or display of weakness. How many of you men growing up here were told by your daddies, we don't cry, son. We don't cry. Don't show weakness. Your daddy meant well, but your daddy was wrong. And if you tell your boys that, you're wrong too. I'm just going to tell you. We cannot hide our weakness. There are times to be strong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying men run around like a bunch of blubbering idiots. I'm simply saying there are times when it's appropriate. There are times to show affection to those that you love. There are times to show affection to those who are hurting. Is that not what Christ commanded? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And love your neighbor as yourself. I've told you before, if you want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body, then love your neighbor. That's how you're going to do it. That's what it looks like. Our culture just doesn't tolerate it. It tells us to do exactly the opposite. Be brave. Be daring. In the business world, you go after what you want. It's up to you to make things go your way. We all know people like this. People who spend their whole life trying to get ahead by moving around. Always looking for something bigger and better. More important and more satisfying. Yet only God knows how and why and where we might make a difference. And even though I think we should use our spiritual gifts the best, as best we can figure out what they might be, in the best way possible, perhaps our goal should be to find out how best we can be used, how best we can serve someone else, not how high we can go. Not so that Linus can see us in the clouds. God uses our weakness to do things so that we can see and understand who is really making all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. When you know this is how God works, you'll be much more willing to think about the small ministries, the small things in this life that go unnoticed by the world. Some of these things are the greatest gifts you could ever offer the king. The pastor, the elders, the deacons, they're not the only kingdom workers. All of you are kingdom workers. And you have something to contribute to the kingdom. Even things that you're afraid of. And the more we rely on our strength and our character, the less likely we will be sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. God works in those who can embrace their frailty. Know that apart from Him, we can do nothing. And we're constantly, we should be constantly seeking to be more dependent on Him. Towards the end of Pilgrim's Progress, the traveler who has journeyed so far and is allowed into the celestial city. He's shown the storehouse of weapons for those that inhabit the city of God's glory. 
Can you guess what the weapons are that are displayed there? Trumpets and broken pots. The tools that God used, the frailty of a totally inadequate Gideon to bring divine victory. So even as we recognize our frailty, we don't need to count ourselves out. We don't need to think, God can't use me. And as Gideon's story has gone on, you might have concluded that weak people like Gideon win because they're more spiritual than you and I. If they face their fears and weaknesses by turning to God, it would make sense for God to use people with great spiritual character to win big spiritual battles. If you think this way, you may be ready to stop looking for God's purpose because you may feel like you, your life doesn't have all the spiritual values it should. If this is the case, you need Gideon. And you need the part of the story that talks about how his spiritual life was important. In the chapter following Gideon's great victory, the people want to make him a king. And he refuses, saying that only God should rule God's covenant people. But even as Gideon refuses the royal office, he still grabs for the privileges that come with a kingly status. He consolidates power. He has multiple wives. He has a son that he names. The Hebrew name means my father is king. He uses the gold from his victory over the Midianites to make an idolatrous priestly vestment called an ephod. And if you've been in Brian's Sunday school class recently, Brian talked about an ephod. Now Gideon is making an ephod, a really fancy ephod, for himself. And he does this so that he can know the will of God. In this way, he makes all of Israel dependent on him and his family. And the scriptures record that all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping the ephod. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So the same Gideon who God used to defeat the Midianites with 300 men, this same mighty warrior turned right around and made an idol from the spoils of the victory God provided. I'll ask you again. What would you do with Gideon now? Would you pick Gideon? What do you think you might want to do with him now that you've given him this great victory? And this is how he acts. It's time for some storms, some disasters. How about some plagues of Egypt in his life? He deserves it. But the Bible says during Gideon's lifetime, the, lad, the land had peace for 40 years. Well, how can that be? Well, the answer is that God can make a great omelet out of rotten eggs. I'm not saying Gideon's sins did not have negative effects on his life. They did. The Bible says that Gideon's family fell into trouble because of this ephod. And they fought for power in Israel. But God's use of Gideon was still good for the country as a whole, for the nation as a whole. In the Old Testament, the Lord showed his great kindness by showing that he could and would 
use people with flaws as big as Gideon's for his own good. Without a doubt, Gideon was a broken hero. And yet good things still come from him. It's not that unusual for people with flaws to be blessed. In all areas of life, we can find, we know, we meet people with significant flaws who are often in positions of power. And you may, want to, you may have a hero you want to meet or someone you want to work with. And when you finally do, you might be surprised to find out that they have fears. They have weaknesses and flaws you would have never thought they had. You wonder how someone with so much influence could have fears and doubts and make mistakes. God uses imperfect people. And Gideon in the Old Testament is a picture of God's amazing grace. God loves those who are afraid, weak and broken. Recognizing this kind of love is the blessing that gives us strength to serve. The kindness that keeps our sin from destroying us and the grace that keeps us. Knowing that God uses the weak for his glory should make us brave, strong, righteous. And hopefully it makes us ready to admit our mistakes and our weakness. And be willing to get back up again. Steve Brown has said that the only people who ever get any better spiritually are those who know that if they never get any better, God will still love them anyway. Now, Dr. Brown's words are wise. They're wise things to apply to our heart. Help us to realize that our lives are useful. The only people who ever really serve God well know that if they never entirely get over their fears, their frailties, and their flaws, God can use them anyway. Now, there, <coughs> there is no excuse not to get better and to grow in your sanctification. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. What I'm telling you today is to get better, to grow. But God can use you today, right where you're at, in your weakness, in your frailties. And though fears, frailties, and flaws may characterize where you've been, or even where you're at right now, they do not have to characterize where you're going. Be a vessel, a broken vessel, in God's hand so that he may pour his glory from you. Be willing in your weakness to be a trumpet of his grace. And it may not be in the way which you pictured or you desired, but know this. Broken pots and blown trumpets are still mighty weapons in the hands of our God who uses the weak for his own glory. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that in your wisdom you called your people to gather together, to be drawn up into your presence, to be fed by you, to confess our sins to you, and to sing our praises to you, to lift our requests before you. Father, take these words now and apply them to our heart that they might change and shape our lives. In Christ's name, amen.